This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. They're so paranoid that somebody in the class is going to be headed over to the dean's office after class by something they said in an approved curriculum, and it's going to get traction, then we've got the tail wagging the dog. Preparing them in the way that we need to with the trigger warning should be universally talked about in terms of what that is. It can't just be student-driven. And I don't think we're preparing the student for life. So what do we do about it? Okay, hello everybody. This is Dr. Phil, and you are on fill in the blanks, but you knew that because you had to hit the button to get here. My guest today is uh, very important to this conversation. Let me tell you about her. Her name is Dr. Dina Mannion. She is a celebrated doctor of psychology and licensed clinical social worker since 1993, specializing in substance abuse, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, couple counseling, family therapy, and really just a lot of important areas in psychology and human functioning. She has a doctorate in clinical psychology from Ryokan College, a master's degree in clinical social work from Columbia University, a bachelor's degree in psychology from Pace University. She has a private practice in L.A., in Beverly Hills, or actually, where is your private practice? In Los Angeles and Agora Hills, both Yeah, offices. Los Angeles and Agora Hills. Yes. And also works at uh, West Wind Recovery Centers, which is a really top drawer recovery center. I asked Dr. Mannion to be here today because we're talking about a social issue and a psychological issue that I think are at odds. And I haven't asked her in advance what she thinks about it, but I have tremendous respect for her. And because she has great vertical development in psychology and the social sciences overall. So I really wanted to hear what she had to think about this. So welcome, Dr. Mannion. Thank you, Dr. Phil. How have you been? I'm great. Thank you. It's yeah. so nice to see you in this different venue. I know. How about this? You're the in my man cave here, right? Yeah. I know. I don't ride these motorcycles anymore. Robin <laughs> took the keys away and buried them in the backyard She's when smart. I crashed. She's not a smart woman. Ago. She doesn't let me do that anymore. <laughs> so look, here's what I want to talk about today. I know this is going to be controversial and I want to hear from all of the viewers and listeners. And I'm not sure how to describe all of this. I'm not sure of all the terminology. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what terms we use, but Here's what I'm talking about. There is a different mentality in the way we are educating and preparing the current generation. And I'm not sure where we define the end of one generation and the beginning of another. I know we have millennials, Gen Z, baby boomers, Gen X. I don't really care to even get into all of that. But I know that right now, there is a different mindset, certainly at the university level, 
in terms of how we are preparing young people today, particularly at the university level, in terms of what they are exposed to. And what I'm talking about is everything that's offensive, everything that is contrary to their core value system, they're protected from. A third of current undergraduates think it is acceptable to shout down or exclude speakers that have a different mindset than they have. They don't want them on their campus. We have students that are turning in complaints about professors that present different points of view than the students hold to be their core values. After the presidential election, we had universities all over the country that had comfort suites. They had puppies in suites on live puppies. I don't know where they got them or what they did with them afterwards, (laughs) but they had puppies because they knew students were going. Now, in fairness, it's reported that they had the puppies before the election results were in, so I guess it was for either side. But I'm not sure that's entirely true, but that students were going to be upset and needed comforting. What the hell's going on here? Dr. Phil, it's it's mind-blowing and and from a, you know, a therapist who is trauma informed i really understand that we do want to have safe spaces in our colleges and in life in general but protecting college kids from what the real world is like to me is not the way to go tomorrow only on disney plus my name is taylor welcome to the eras tour Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. Well, you said trauma-informed. I totally get that. Let's talk about what constitutes trauma. What's traumatizing kids? Some of this I don't want to get into a lot of detail about because I don't want to bring back up cases that professors have confided in me. But there are situations where professors 
in law school, because as you know, I've spent most of my professional career in the litigation arena. I was in private practice years ago and then co-founded a company called Courtroom Sciences. And we were in the trial science business, which meant we helped with trial strategy, jury selection, witness preparation, mirror juries at trial, spent a lot of time in trial. And so I've been very active in the legal profession for a long time. So I have a lot of contacts in the law schools and law firms. And I've had people tell me that they have asked students on final, for example, they would have a case that was in the media and they would say, okay, half of the class for your final, I want you to prepare a closing argument for the defense and half of the class for the prosecution. And if it was a politically charged case, the prosecution side, for example, was so upset that that wasn't the politically popular side to take, would complain that that was traumatizing to them. It was contrary to their core beliefs, and so being asked to argue the other side was traumatizing to them, and they complained to the dean, and the professor was called on the carpet. That's as specific as I'll get. I don't want to go beyond that because I don't want to open this can of worms back up. But isn't that what advocacy is all about? I mean, when they get into the real world, aren't they supposed to find the—I mean, I suppose they can refuse to represent a client, but don't you take them where you find them? If you go to the public defender's office or you go to the county prosecutor's office or you open a law office, don't you have to be a bit of a chameleon? Well, you would know the legal stuff better than me, but I'll tell you that being able to argue both sides of an opinion builds character. I, my 15-year-old, I picked her up from school the other day and I asked her what her favorite class was and she goes to a very small progressive high school in Hollywood. And she said, the opinions class. And I said, what, what is that? And she said, well, we have to come up with an opinion about a topic, and then we have to argue both sides of it. She said, I'm really good at it, mom. And I was like, wow. She said, I, I'm really like hearing other people's perspectives on things that I wouldn't normally consider right or wrong. And people are making arguments for both sides. And then we can make up our minds. And I think that's what's not happening in colleges right now, where it's, you know, if, if you're exposed to violence or you have trauma from something that happened to you in childhood, you're not being traumatized if you're not being violated in a classroom. These are just discussions that are being brought up. And I think if something is brought up that trigger something in somebody, then that needs to be dealt with. But I think we're coming from this emotional place where we're allowing this emotional reactivity to happen in schools and not preparing adults to be in the real world. Well, that's my concern. Listen, I understand safe spaces. If you're someone that has been traumatized, if you're someone that suffers from PTSD, if you're someone that has 
been the victim of a violent crime, you're a rape victim, or you've been mugged, or you've had a member of your family murdered, and you get into some coarse content that brings all that up, that that could be a genuine trigger. Definitely. For you. I mean, that's legit. Okay, then you shouldn't be in that course. You have a genuine condition or mental illness or circumstance that you should perhaps deal with before you put yourself in that circumstance or environment. But aside from that, to be in a situation that is just contrary to your belief, it seems to me that the real world is not going to make those kind of allowances for you. You're going to get out there where it's kind of like parents that indulge their children. You're going to get out in a world where they don't think you're precious. They don't think you're a prince or princess. They don't think you're God's gift to the world. And they're going to expect you to show up on time. They're going to expect you to carry your own weight. They're going to expect you to do the job. They're going to expect you to perform, make your quotas, do everything you're supposed to do. And if you don't, you're going to wind up at the bottom of the barrel. And it seems to me that we're setting this generation up to turn around and sue their universities for not preparing them to be competitive in the world. You know, one of the questions that 20-somethings ask me when I'm interviewing them for jobs at my treatment center is, it is, how many vacation days do I get? And when are my breaks? That's it. That's what they're interested in. Really? Yeah. It's come up over and over, and I'm just thinking, wow, this is what we're setting them up to ask. Is that unreasonable, or is it us? <laughs> well, I sure didn't grow up that way. I'm not sure how you grew up, but I grew up with a strong work ethic and with parents that were self-made and um, you know, learning how to deal with adversity and deal with bullying and deal with things that happened at school or in relationships. and. I learned by doing. I learned by experiencing. And I think if we take away the experience, how are they going to learn? They're just going to be entitled and thinking that the world owes them something. Well, I'm bothered by it. I'm afraid that we're not doing what we need to do currently in society to get these kids prepared to really be competitive in life. And I'm wondering how much is enough. I mean, how far can it go? You mentioned the book. I haven't read the book. I read an article, Coddling of the American Mind. It was in the Atlantic. It was by Lukanoff and Height. Is it Hate Height? Yeah, and that's taken from the book. Yeah, okay. It's H-A-I-D-T. Uh, so I want to give them full credit for some mm -hmm. of the things I'm going to quote here because they did that research, not me. But I thought it was an excellent article. They report in there that in 1214, Jenny Souk, a Harvard professor, reported that a law student was asking 
professors not to teach rape law and not to use the word, quote, violate regarding the law. Not violate about rape, but just not violate law because those were triggers. The word violate was a trigger. So they were saying, don't use the word violate the law. It makes no sense. And listen, if I'm missing the point here, somebody tell me. I can learn. (laughs) I can learn. But if you're talking about, I'm going to cite you because you violated the law, you can't say that anymore. I'm going to cite you because you broke the law, but you don't say violate the law. That just seems to me to be getting a little too sensitive. Laura Knipsis at Northwestern University wrote about sexual paranoia and had a Title IX complaint filed against her. I think as long as we're allowing students to decide what the trigger warning should be, we're going to be in trouble because there's going to be no end to this. It's going to be, I didn't like the way you said my name. In this article, I also read that it was, it was inappropriate to ask somebody where they're born. Yeah. I mean, how do we know what's going to trigger anybody at any given time? I think if there was some kind of standard trigger warnings about things that are, you know, really um, kind of universally upsetting that we could agree on, that maybe we could agree on this. But I think allowing students to just say, I didn't like that, therefore this teacher needs to be fired, is a pretty scary time that we're in. Well, you know, they moved to recall, I don't know how far it got, but they moved to recall the school board in San Francisco because they were wanting to take the names Washington and Lincoln off of the schools up there throughout the Bay Area. I think it's on multiple schools. And they said, eh, A, we don't think you should be doing that. But B, if we should, should it really be the priority? So I did a little bit of looking during the time that they were focused on that. And in 2019, Joe Concha a columnist for The Hill reported that there were 70,000 lives lost to drug overdose. In 2020, it was up 45%. And they studied 190 million ER visits from April of 1920 to October 1920. The Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry Edition said opioid deaths were up 29%. And I kind of wondered what the situation was up in the Bay Area. And opioid deaths there doubled during that time period. And it kind of made me wonder if they shouldn't have been focused perhaps on teaching in the schools about the dangers that were on the streets in the Bay Area instead of what was on the school buildings Mm -hmm. in the streets at the time. It just seemed like priority-wise, I just wondered if we've just gotten so focused on a social sensitivity 
that we've forgotten about saving lives. We've forgotten about preparing students again for the real world. I'm not getting into the debate of whether or not Abraham Lincoln and George Washington are the dregs of society or not. I mean, you can make up your own mind about that. But it just seemed to me, was that the most burning issue when opioid deaths had doubled during that same period of time? That school board had taken time to focus on that. I wonder how many hours they spent focused on getting those names off the building if they had taken those hours and focused on putting into the curriculum something to save these kids' lives. I did a podcast the other day that said just what they have seized in terms of fentanyl that's come into America in these fake pills is enough to what, Laferne, kill every American walking today? How are people creating or lacing pills with this fentanyl? How is this being created? Dr. Phil, going back to 2008, China was uh, making a lot of synthetic drugs, bath salts, K2 spice. They were pushing them into America through the mail and everything like that. There was a lot of pressure put on the Chinese government, and they started switching over to fentanyl. I started seeing fentanyl deaths around 2012. Then they realized they could send it to the Mexican cartels. The Mexican cartels could actually mix the fentanyl in other drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine. And then the Sinaloa cartel, the cartel Jalisco New Generation, started realizing the profit potential because this stuff is not plant-based. It's synthetic. It's easy to make, very cheap. This is where it's been a game changer. Just to give you an illustration, here's a sweetener that we all use daily for coffee and tea. If you open up this bag, it's one gram. That's 500 Americans can die from this powder in one gram, okay? Because it's only two milligrams that could kill an adult. So if you look at the explosion on the Southwest border, as an example, last year they seized 11,201 pounds, our brave men and women in Border Patrol and CBP. But one thing I want to emphasize, Dr. Phil, 40% of those pills have a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. And you're right. If we seize 20 million, there's so many more in this country. And that's the scary part. So there will be more and more deaths. 11,000 pounds, that's enough to kill how many people? Well, the DEA administrator said the amount of drugs seized by the DEA alone could kill every American in this country. Yeah, that's my point. Just what was seized is enough to kill every American walking today. That's the, that's the scope of what we're dealing with here. People hear us, what we're talking about here. Your children are under attack and they're walking around with a computer in their pocket that gives them access to these deadly drugs. These fake pills that are on the street that are being sold on social media platforms are such a danger Maybe they ought to be talking about that. That is a clear and present danger right now today. But yeah. they're not talking about that, but they're talking about trigger warnings and microaggressions like, where were you born? And look, I'm not in one of those affected classes, so I can't 
be completely empathetic with that. But at Brandeis University, Lukanoff and Haight reported that they were trying to do the right thing. And so they, on the steps to one of the buildings, they'd put on the face of the steps some trigger warnings on there about, you know, things to just be conscious of this. Just don't do these things. And they got complaints in that even putting up the trigger warning was a trigger. (laughs) So now the trigger warning's a trigger. Oh, gosh. They put up, aren't you supposed to be good at math? And I'm colorblind. And I understand that that's stereotyping. I get that. I'm not stupid. I get that. But the president had to get it taken off and issue an apology. The intention was good, but they said the trigger warning was a trigger. So it seems like the trump card is to say, I'm offended. Mm. So if you say, I'm offended, then that's your trump card. If you say you're offended, then somebody has to react or you're blaming the victim. I mean, we're all offended every day by something different, right? So, but part of what you said before I thought was interesting, and I wanted to kind of weave it in, in terms of the fentanyl piece and taking a pill to just numb out. And I think part of what we're talking about here is this idea that you don't have to work through anything. I loved in the article when they talked about using cognitive behavioral therapy as a way um, to teach young people how to think about things differently because when you're reacting from an emotional place or something that offends you and you just act based on that, you're not actually going to either talk through or work through or listen or understand what somebody else is saying and you just jump to this needs to stop. And the other thing that I wanted to say in terms of the safe space is even when people come into the treatment center and they they say the words I want this to be a safe place. I say, I can't promise you that because we can't promise that nothing's going to happen or that somebody's not going to say something that's going to upset them or trigger them. And these are people that have been traumatized, that are coming in for treatment. I mean, we can't guarantee people aren't going to be offended by something that somebody says at some point, whether it's a teacher or somebody else. So I think the oversensitivity to this has really gotten at an all-time high and kind of out of control. And look, I agree, and I don't know where the threshold should be. It seems to me it has gotten to be different from what the real world is going to be, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you don't have the right to be offended generally. Yes. I mean, people have the right to be offended, and there are many offensive things that people are going to encounter in their life every day. And should we work to minimize those things? Sure. You know, I've got my boys are grown, and people can say, well, they're white and privileged, so. You don't have much to be offended about. But I have two grandchildren that are 12 and 10 and two more that are one and one month. 
So they're going to be coming up through this world. And my point is this. I would hope that they would be in an environment where they wouldn't be so averse to offensive stimuli that they would be put off by it. Because from a psychological standpoint, there's a completely different mindset, right? If somebody finds something troubling them, anxiety-producing in some way, in psychology, our approach is not to avoid it, but to go exactly the opposite direction, right? Slowly expose yourself to it. To do immersion therapy, exposure therapy, systematic desensitization. And what we're talking about is if there's something that is anxiety producing for you, something that creates discomfort for you that you can't control, that you learn to cope with it, you learn to live with it in a way that you're not paralyzed by it, that you don't have an anxiety reaction to it. And the way they do that, I don't want to get into a lot of detail about this, but it's a stepwise progression where, let's say you have an elevator phobia, for example. It would start out by saying, okay, if you have an elevator phobia, then we would put you in a lobby with an elevator in it, but you would be as far away from the elevator as you could possibly be, and we would get you as relaxed as you could possibly be, where you could be completely relaxed in the lobby with an elevator at the other end. Then it would move you closer. And if you got it all anxious, we'd back you up a little bit. And then we'd move you closer. And then if you got anxious, we'd back you up a little bit. And then we'd get to, we could get you all the way in the elevator without having any anxiety. And then we'd push the button. And if you got anxious, we'd stop it and get you back out of it. And then we'd put you back in until you could actually ride the elevator without anxiety. We would systematically desensitize you to the offensive stimuli until you go, okay, I can live with this. Doesn't mean you love it. Doesn't mean you get up every morning and say, where's an elevator? Put me in one. But you could do it. And that's part of what I think needs to happen. I'm not saying you learn to live with prejudice, judgment, other people's offensive reactions to you, but to the extent that you can't control it, we need to prepare people to cope with it. Am I wrong? I agree totally. And I think, you know, just, just you know, um, Several years ago, when we had this whole like bullying campaign, zero tolerance in schools for bullying and all of this, and um, you know, I had a teenager who was experiencing bullying, and you know, one of the things that really set her up for success was actually learning how to deal with the bullying, not not necessarily having the administration stop it, because we know that that doesn't happen but how to actually deal with it. And by learning new coping skills, you know, she learned how to have a voice and how to deal with it and different things that she could put into place. But if we just got the bully out of the school, she would have never learned any of that. And so I think there's always going to be a bully. There's always going to be somebody who says something offensive. 
Um, you know, that elevator could have stopped mid-trip when we're trying to have that person not be afraid of elevators. Like, they're, you know, we can't control this stuff. We have to learn how to deal with these things as they come up and how you cope. And I think we're not teaching our youth how to cope with anxiety, with depression. I mean, one of my kids the other day said, well, all my friends are depressed. All of them. And I was like, what does depression mean? And she couldn't describe what that meant. So it's just a word that they're all using. I'm going to kill myself. I'm suicidal. You know, these are, these are things that kids are saying now that are, it's like we're desensitized to it because everyone's saying it. So I think, you know, we have to figure out a way to help teach our kids how to cope with diversity and prejudice and bullying and offensive language and, and all of it to make them a well-rounded, strong person. You said something that was really important about you could get the bully out of the school, but who's going to take the bully's place? And then when they get out of school and they get in the workplace, who's to say the boss isn't going to be a bully? And then you're going to replace the boss? I've always said, and I said this in a podcast the other day, if I had two applicants in front of me that I was considering for the same job, and they were matched in every way, age, intelligence, experience, in every way except one of them had a college degree and the other one didn't, even if the college degree was in a totally irrelevant field, I would probably be somewhat favorable towards the college graduate for this reason until now. What I would know about the college graduate, based on my own experience, is I would know that, number one, they could set a long-term goal, they could meet deadlines, They could work as part of a group, and they could get along with authority figures they did not like, because it's their job to get along with the professor, not the professor's job to get along with them. And I don't know that about this candidate over here. I do know it about this one over here, because based on my experience— Certainly in graduate school, I walked around the last year with my resignation letter on my clipboard. (laughs) So I know that there's a lot of pressure, and I know that they had to do those four or five things. Maybe this person's had to do that, but maybe not. This I know this about this person. Now I don't know that about college graduates anymore because I know. If they went according to the coddling of the American mind, they reported in 2015 school year that all 10 of the University of California schools, they had a list of trigger statements to avoid. And one was, you can no longer say America is the land of opportunity. I'm sorry? I'm sorry? You can no longer say, I believe the most qualified person should get the job. What can we say? I'm serious. 
that means we can no longer advocate for a meritocracy. So now, what do I know about someone that's been through the college experience? I, I don't... They've gotten a trophy for everything they've done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of comedians that won't go on the college campuses anymore. Chris Rock won't go. Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Kirk Fox is a good friend of mine, a really good comedian. Ron White, good comedian, just says, they can't take a joke. It's just not worth it. They can't take a joke. Dave Chappelle, they cannot take a joke. And I, I don't think it's just college students. I think we're in a, a canceled culture in general. And so these are the kids that are, you know, coming up. Steve Harvey says, I'm not doing comedy anymore. Really? Yeah. Says he's not doing any stand-up anymore. I love Steve Harvey. Yeah, he's one of my best friends. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's one of my best friends. And he says, I'm not doing a. It's sad. I mean, we we have to laugh at ourselves. I mean, part of, you know, being in therapy um, and, you know, having my private clients. I mean, one of the things that we do is laugh about our character defects. You know, we have to kind of be able to laugh at ourselves and, you know, and, and live life lightly. I mean, this is this seems all so serious. It's like, where's the levity? Where's the humor? Where's, you know, being able to experience that comedy and laugh and not, you know, cancel everyone? Yeah, I worry about the cancel culture because it seems to me it's gotten to the point that you punish anyone that violates one of this moving bar, even accidentally. Yeah. And when I say accidentally, sometimes the vocabulary changes. Mm. Sometimes how to refer to a certain population changes. And what was acceptable at one time, what was maybe even in the DSM at one time, is no longer considered. Maybe it never was, but to the general population or the clinical population it was. If you slip or, or get your verbs wrong or whatever, then you've dehumanized someone. It's not intentional. I mean, it might be, but it seems like there's more interest in catching someone stepping on the line instead of what their intent really was, what they really meant. Somebody misspeaks or accidentally says something, it's like, gotcha. That actually happens in my treatment center. You know, clients come from all over the country to Westwind, and, you know, there's a certain um, standard in the Los Angeles area. It's very progressive, and, you know, people might come from other parts of the states and have no idea about pronouns and how to refer to people in any of that. And we actually try to do some cultural sensitivity training with people coming from elsewhere because we're afraid that they're going to get canceled in our treatment center and, you know, ousted from getting treatment because they're saying the wrong thing if they're coming from a place where they literally have never heard this before. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's about education and it's also about personal preference. Like, you know, not everybody is going to want to be referred to in the same way. Not everybody's going to be offended by the same thing. And 
how are we really supposed to know unless somebody tells you personally and directly? Yeah. And if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so if you've got this one issue, it's like, boy, you're on point for every word, everything. And I think we just need to be more forgiving. The whole thing about being a social justice warrior, and there's a professor at North Carolina State, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Nacost. It's N-A-C-O-S-T-E. I've read several of his articles. It's Rupert Nacost at North Carolina State University. He says, if you're going to be a social justice warrior, then you need to be focused on bringing communities together. And it's not about attacking someone, that shouldn't be a badge of honor. That shouldn't be the thing where you're the social justice warrior, so you're nailing somebody. That's not the idea. It's about building coalitions and bringing communities together. And if you haven't read anything by him, I really suggest that you do. There's this whole idea, I think, of this kind of gotcha cancel culture Mm -hmm. that has gotten way out of hand, however well-intended it may have started, I think it's gotten way out of hand. And I just think that we need to have a more forgiving spirit about each other. And if I think about it from a psychological standpoint, I think about it's actually pathological thinking that's going on in the universities because we're telling people to avoid those things that are intimidating to them as opposed to learning to accommodate to, overcome, cope with, deal with, find some way to master those things so they don't give their power away. We're also telling them to impulsively act on their emotions, not think through things, not be thoughtful about things, but just react to your emotions. And we can't walk through life doing that. I mean, that's not the way life works. We have to think through our emotional state and be able to respond appropriately in society. And I think we're teaching them that they don't need to do that. Everybody can be offended. And I don't want people to hear me or us saying that anytime someone is offended that it's a paper tiger because that's not true. There are legitimate situations where people have experienced legitimate trauma. To do something that calls that trauma to the forefront and creates a legitimate mental, emotional, physiological reaction is very unfortunate and something that should be avoided at all cost. If you know that it's coming, and you can tell somebody about it, then great. Then they can avoid that. And if there's something in a course description that lets somebody know, hey, we're going to cover a book in here that deals with rape or molestation or home invasion or something that hits really close to home, then by all means. 
opt out. Give the person the opportunity to say, I want to avoid that. And if someone is in a situation where they have been traumatized in a legitimate way, and we can provide a healing, nurturing, safe environment for them, we should do that in the educational environment. But there has to be some kind of threshold. If you're so hypersensitive, so fragile that virtually anything a professor says, they're so paranoid that somebody in the class is going to be headed over to the dean's office after class by something they said in an approved curriculum, and it's going to get traction, then we've got the tail wagging the dog. And I don't think we're preparing the student for life. So what do we do about it? What's the solution? Well, I think it's important to, like you said, be sensitive to students who are struggling with certain things that could be trigger, you know, triggering to them. I mean, that's why we have counseling centers. That's why we have people that students can talk to if they're struggling with certain issues. But I think preparing them in the way that we need to with the trigger warning should be something, like I said earlier, that's universally universally talked about in terms of what that is. It can't just be student-driven. I think there should be more guidelines put in place as to what that looks like, just like parental guidance warnings on TV shows and things like that. Um, I think if we just let this kind of be student-driven, we're going to be in trouble. I think so. It seems to me that Universities were designed to bring together different ideologies. And if you look at the Socratic method, you had to examine your own undocumented beliefs. Okay, let's challenge these. Let me hear the other side. I was born and raised in the Baptist church. I didn't stay in the Baptist church my whole life, but I was born and raised in the Baptist church. And I recall one time I was reading a book about Satan. And I read a lot when I was young. The pastor saw me reading the book about Satan. And, oh, my God. They called my parents. They visited the home that night. They wanted to know what was going on. and. I said, well, you know, you're, you're talking about it all the time. I <laughs> thought, this is the enemy. Study the enemy. I grew up as an athlete. I studied the opponent all the time. If this is the enemy, I wanted to, uh, oh, you, no, you, you shouldn't do that. You, you shouldn't do that. You, you shouldn't study. Why not? You talk about how Satan will sneak up on you. You're not going to sneak up on me. I'm going to know what this son bitch has on his mind every minute. I was stunned that this pastor did not want me reading about Satan. I really was. It's like it wasn't a pro-Satan book. It was a negative Satan. It was about here's all the tricks and traps and all that kind of stuff. And so the Dr. Phil personality has not changed over time. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> To my parents' credit, they said, yeah, well, thanks for stopping by, but you're not censoring what the boy's reading. At least it's not a comic book. 
But see, you just mentioned something that's so critical, which is the parental influence in addition to the school, right? So that is so important. So if we're going to teach our kids that to do this in this way, it's got to start with the parents, I think. And it starts at that young age where we're teaching them everybody's a winner. You get a trophy for everything. If you're offended, I'll call the school and get that teacher fired. I mean, that's what we're dealing with now, as opposed to, hey, you need to learn how to deal with this. Uh, it seems to me the first step that I would have advocated in some of these situations is if the student came in and said, I found this to be offensive, then make your case and clearly if it's blatant bigotry, if there's some, it doesn't have to be racial, whatever it might be, then look at it. If it's a pattern of behavior, then you deal with it. If it's not, then you try to have the two resolve their differences. Is this your intention? Figure it out. Hopefully the two can resolve the situation. That's part of the maturity of the student having a difference. Now, I understand there's a difference in power between the student and if they're making an anonymous complaint and they don't want to face the teacher and fear for their grade or whatever. I understand that. But to the extent that the student can resolve these things themselves, they need to do that. They need to own that. If it's a situation where there's a power imbalance, I get it. But they need to be held accountable for what's the real issue. You just can't put something in the complaint box and walk away. You've got to stand for the complaint. You've got to give a rationale for it. And there's got to be more to it than just, I was offended, Bob student. And you may or may not get your way as a result. I mean, it might not go your way, and then you have to deal with that. As I've said, if it's a legitimate thing, then certainly accommodations can be made. But we need to prepare these students for the real world. Psychology says they need to be tough enough to learn to cope with and accommodate to things in life that they're not going to like. They're not going to like everything. Everybody's not going to get a trophy. And that's not going to make everybody happy, but... <laughs> they're not happy anyway. <laughs> they're not happy anyway. Yeah. Now, is there a point that you believe we should start teaching these kids how to cope with anxiety, depression, stress, cyberbullying, these issues as part of the curriculum in school? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, even though I practice from an eclectic, you know, point of view, I, I believe that cognitive behavioral therapy is the most researched um, therapy. It's probably the easiest to understand and to put into practice because um, it's very, you know, systematic in terms of how it works. But to change your thinking about something um, and not just act on your feeling, but to actually check it, make sure that it's not distorted in some way, hear what some other, you know, possibilities are, 
and start to really look at, is this just me and my the way that I feel? Is this something that, you know, like you said, is something that needs to be pursued and dealt with? And I think that we just need to teach our children how to gain skills to cope with adversity, prejudice, bullying, you know, all of these things, being offended, um, and that it doesn't make it right, but it teaches them how to cope with it, whether that's making the complaint or whether that's dealing with it, you know, onto themselves or whether it's addressing it or whatever it is. I think to give them some skills other than just call somebody out on social media and try to get them canceled. Well, I had the opportunity to testify before a bipartisan committee of Congress on the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And it was dealing with or how to deal with cyberbullying. One of the things that I heard the administration say is that this is not our job. Our job is to educate these kids at school because cyberbullying is taking place off campus, not on campus. So that's not our job. That's the job of the parent. I said, you need to make it your job mm-hmm. because you have access to these kids 40% of their waking hours. Most of these relationships are formed at school, and there was a time when you could leave school and leave the bully behind. The bullying took place on the bus dock. It took place behind the gym. It took place in the cafeteria, and when the student went home, they were safe. Now, the cyber bully can follow them home. And the parent thinks they're back there in their bedroom doing their homework when in fact they're on some chat group or whatever from school with people saying, we hate you, you're ugly, kill yourself. And too often it has happened that they go back there and find their child, boy or girl, seventh or eighth grade, hanging themselves in their closet dead. I've had many a story that I've had to do on the show where they've shot themselves or hung themselves. And I'll never forget one mother, not 50 feet from here, her son shot himself in the face. It started with the name calling. Brandon had used the 357 Magnum. When I saw him, the first thought that went through my mind is he looks on the outside now like he has felt on the inside for so long. These were all kids from school saying terrible things to him on the Internet. And I think, again, the schools can help so much if we can teach kids the early warning signs of anxiety, depression, stress, learned helplessness, interpersonal violence. You get these kids in seventh or eighth grade and they get in these relationships and think, oh my God, I'm loved so much because he's calling me 50 times an hour. He's just, they don't realize 
These are early warning signs of abuse here. You need to spot this and recognize it and how to deal with a bully, how to defuse a bullying situation, bystander responsibilities when there are bullying situations, how to cope with these things. And it's not going to happen in the schools until you put the money behind it so it becomes part of the curriculum. you got to set aside 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, three days a week or something like that to teach them the basic tenets of recognizing these red flags and what to do about it when they see it. And cognitive behavioral therapy, to me, seems like a very understandable intervention, short-term intervention strategy that will work with kids at virtually any age. I agree. I also think that, you know, what you just talked about uh, is so important because it, it also identifies, you know, if you, if you have it out there in the schools, it identifies for teachers and administrators what the problems are, right? Because so much of this is in secret and without their knowledge. And so kids want to vent. They want to talk about things. And I know when I was a, a, a social worker in school, in a school setting, public school, um, I would have, you know, a lot of kids come to my office and have lunch with me and we would just sit and chat and I would find out a lot in that hour lunch period about what was going on. And then, but I was only one person and I was a social worker at the time and a minority in the school. And, you know, they don't want to hear the problems, you know, they, they don't really want to hear it. Um, so I think if if universally we did this in schools and it was just part of the curriculum, that would be amazing. Yeah, you know, if they can just teach kids just some of the basic tenets of cognitive behavior therapy, how to reframe their internal dialogue. Don't assume you can read the minds of the person that you're dealing with. Don't assume that you can predict the future don't catastrophize, don't label, don't discount positives about yourself. Learn to accept compliments from other people. Stop negative filtering, all of these things, and you know, teach them the four criteria for irrational thought so they can test their thinking if they don't have the wherewithal to go talk to somebody. All the, all the different things can make a huge difference. And we don't know when our thoughts are distorted either. No, so not unless you we, test them. Yeah, exactly. Get them, if nothing else, to stop playing the what-if game mm. and realize let's live in the moment and get through. There are so many important things they can teach them. I think if we would start doing some of these things instead of coddling these kids, I think we would have a much better chance of preparing them for life and them succeeding. But that's not going to happen unless you put money and time behind it. And they did some of that in the last reauthorization after we had the hearings, but that was at elementary and secondary level. We'll see how much difference it makes. But now things, the pendulum seems to have swung the other way. So, well, I'll conclude this conversation by saying I think I speak for Dina Mannion as well as myself. We're not here to discount anybody's experience in any way, in anything. 
there are legitimate traumas, no question about it. We're not saying that. There are triggers that people can walk right into and have a genuine bad response. We're just saying that trigger's gotten to be a hair trigger. And real trauma is being lost in hypersensitivity with so many things that are being labeled as traumatic that really don't qualify as trauma. And if everybody can complain about anything that makes them even moderately uncomfortable, rather than learning to deal with that discomfort so they can take it in stride, they're going to have a rough ride when they get out of college, and college should prepare people to deal with the real world. Now, that's my closing statement about it. I'll let you make yours. I agree with everything you said, and um, I just appreciate the opportunity to have conversations like this because I think they're so important. Well, I want to make people think, and if you're one of those people that has complained about things in the past, maybe you had something legitimate, maybe you didn't, maybe you'll be offended by this, maybe (laughs) you won't. If you are, that's okay. You can be offended. And I'm here to learn. Dr. Mannion's here to learn. If there's something we're missing, tell us, and we'll discuss it in a future conversation about it. Maybe we'll have you come on and discuss it with us. We don't have all the answers to everything, but we certainly have all the questions. So we're happy to hear from you. Let us know what you think. All we're trying to do is get people as configured as possible to have the best life you can possibly have. This is Dr. Phil with Dina Mannion on Fill in the Blanks. Check you later.